So I would, I would love to just agree with that um, in this way. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray that you would uh, silence the things that would rage around our heart for a few moments and let us hear a refrain of our Creator. Jesus, you are enough. And so, God, I pray as uh, other things compel trembling within us that you would silence those and you would elevate for a few moments and perhaps elevate for the rest of our days and throughout eternity one echoing joy, and that is that, Jesus, you are enough. And so, God, I pray that in the silence there be an echo among us of the name of Jesus. That there would be a conviction that would um, move in this room that the name of Jesus is sufficient and it is enough. And God, I um, am fully cognizant that that movement is different for each one of us. And so I pray that you would um, meet us where we are and that you would um, elevate who you are in that meeting. And so, um, Jesus... Jesus, in the midst of the silence and the fear and the trembling and in the darkness and the hopelessness, break through and be yourself and we will glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been, um, we've been in a few weeks in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts and uh, really have talked about four convictions that um, if lived out would truly um, change the world. And so this is week four. Um, our thoughts are online. And so if something moves in your heart today and you want to back up and you're a guest, you can um, jump onto our website and just go venture backwards three weeks and you can pick us up at the beginning. And so um, I was sitting in uh, our group this morning uh, talking about this idea of what it means to just say, Lord, we want your name to be the amplification of our soul, that we just really want um, to see you move um, in us and through us. And so um, I was listening to that song and just thinking, Jesus, in, this, in the midst of darkness and fear, um, let us tremble at one name. And um, I think there's three things that I gained from uh, our small group this morning is that one, we're in the midst of a consistent um, challenge to live out the name of Jesus where we are. And without these convictions, we probably won't. And um, I think the second part is the challenge that we face is to, first of all, recognize that. And the secondly, to just um, to be a people who know truth and, and walk in the midst of it and are so clear in who we are and what we're about. And then um, I thought it was interesting. And so if you weren't um, in our groups this morning, we, um, we studied the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, which just is really about um, being a people that are armored in the reality and the the power of who Jesus is and what that means and what it means to live him out practically in this earth and how we're carrying good news boldly in this world and how um, this meeting this morning should be great news to the city. I mean, just on and on about what that looks like. And it never ceases to amaze me when I read the sixth chapter of the book of Acts of um, what he says to us because um, I'm, I'm a fan of things like Braveheart. I'm a fan of 300. 
And um, I particularly shared that with our group. I love the film 300. And when they start talking about putting on the armor of God, I start going 300 on this. Um, first of all, this is just good for the church to hear. This is like a freebie right now. But um, as you look at the armor of God, the one area that um, that is not addressed is our back. And it's because we understand fully that we, we are together. We move forward um, for the sake of the gospel together. And there is no need for our back to be covered because we've got it for one another. And that's such a freeing thing to be a part of the body of Christ, knowing that as we walk together, we're just kind of coming as one saying, you are, you are covered here. You are blessed here. You are um, a person that we are for you here. And so um, I don't know what your perception of the body of Christ is. I know what Jesus's is, and I know what he said to Paul, which he says, look, as you sit in the middle of this group here, you should be in the safest place, and you should be also in the place that will advance and will advance with passion and with zeal. And so um, then I read the, the, you know, the thing where, where it's just talking about your sword and your shield and your helmet and you know, our purpose in this world of, with this conviction that we're going to wear the very mission of God on our feet and walk about as a people that are impassioned for the things of God. And so when I finish that, I'm really feeling very barbaric. And I'm really feeling very much, here we go. Like, you know, um, today we sign up for Haiti. I'm like, let's go. And I want to, you know, shout it as William Wallace would, you know, freedom. I mean, I, I mean it's coming. It's, here comes freedom. Here comes a church. And here's, I, I really am so challenged by um, my ability to miss things, even though I swing really hard because what he says is put on all of this. And then here's what I want you to be, church. I want you to be convicted about these things. And here's how I want you to live them out. And in the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, he has us standing there with swords in our hand, with helmets on our body, with chest plates of righteousness just covered for the sake of the kingdom of Christ with the shield of faith going forward. And he says, now, here we go. And he says, so pray. And really, I want you to go in the power of who I am. And I want you to go with the authority of who I am. And I want you to go with conviction of who I am because what you deem as best and your best efforts will be futility apart from the conviction of who I am and what that looks like. So here's what I want you to do, church, is you're just kind of saying, God, we want these convictions to change our lives. And if you will, over the last four weeks, we've wrestled with some extremely heavy stuff. And so we could be on charge right now and I would say let's be on charge let's be on go and let our go be this God our go is yes Lord and now we want to seek your face and we want to understand that the darkness doesn't tremble because we're tough the darkness trembles at the name of Jesus the darkness trembles and we step into darkness and one of my we were singing that song and I haven't heard that song many times and so I was just flipping to Matthew 5, 16, one of the first verses that I memorized with my first student ministry where uh, Matt was two years old. And so um, it's, it's just quintessentially depressing. And so, um, yeah, I was, I was, when I held the babies in the preschool, I ministered to Matt. And so um, my first student ministry, this is our first verse, is let your light so shine before men that they see your good works. And here's what they do. They glorify the Father who's in heaven. And so I'm just kind of going, God, it's not going to be our wondrous works and our extraordinary gathering that moves people. It's going to be um, a people who are just passionate for the things of Christ. 
Um, there were like multiple. If you taught this morning or sat in class, I hope you heard these sentences. Um, and so here's how I would um, close a series on being convicted from the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. Um, here's what conviction looks like. In prayer, we're not in the place of control. We are a people who are pursuing the face of God and we live in a place of submission to the things of God. So I would probably write that down if I were listening. Um, in prayer, we're not in the place that we're seeking control or saying, here we come. Ooh, we're, we're in a place where we're just saying, God, we're about you. And, and where can we carry you where you are? And so teach us, Lord. Um, I, this was my favorite quote of the day. Um, prayer is weaponized weakness. I, I love that quote, and that, you know, it's going to hit social network um, as I'm you know, sitting out on Hole 17 this afternoon. Um, prayer is essentially weaponized weakness. It's the verbal recognition or acknowledgement that, God, I know that Mark seems to be passionate about these four convictions from the life of Stephen, but God, I don't, I don't think I can pull it off. You're in a great spot right there. A great spot to say, Lord, I don't have it. And he's going, I know, but tremble at the name of, of, of me. Tremble at the name of Jesus. Tremble at who I am. And it will be a weaponized weakness advancing for the sake of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prayer isn't magic. It is expressed helplessness. And so I, I don't end this series saying, you know, look, I hope that we have these convictions and we do really well. Church, I pray that we would be... Um, of people who are weaponizing our weakness for the sake of the gospel. And so I want to read, if I can, um, from the book of Acts, verses seven, chapter 7, verses 54 through 59. And um, if you've been with us for a few weeks, these are very familiar verses. Um, and I think if you've been with us for a few weeks, you're wondering what all we can learn from the life of Stephen. And I hope that you would kind of land it. We still have a lot more to learn, and we didn't even give it... Um, due diligence at all in four weeks. When, when they, being the religious leaders, heard the, these things, these things were Stephen presenting the historicity of the faith, the wonder of the living God, all the things that God had done, and then the gospel, and then the reality that you and I were the ones that carried him to the cross and drove the nails into his hands. And so when he presented all that, they were a little bit um, displeased with that. So they're enraged, they gnashed teeth at him. Stephen, on the other hand, was full of the Holy Spirit. And so Stephen, as they're enraged and gnashed teeth, is just... He's just looking at, you know, not even at them at all, just kind of going, I'm gazing into heaven, which is a good place to gaze. And he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so if we could just pause and connect two dots here. One is um, our ability to gaze at Christ is weaponized weakness. And when you're being pummeled with rocks by people who are gnashing their teeth, you're probably positioned weakly anyway. You're positioned in a weak manner anyway in the eyes of the world, but oh my goodness, when the gaze is Godward. Because he's looking at what is at the end of his life, but will become one of the most catalytic uh, moments in Christendom as the advance of Jesus comes out of this extraordinarily painful moment. And I just want to point out that this was the excru most excruciating day for the early church plausible. I don't think I've said that in four weeks. This is the midst of the greatest earthly pain. 
They're sitting and looking at one of the earliest, if not first, martyrs, and they're looking at this extraordinary pain as a guy that they have raised up and said, we love him, and he is being pounded with rocks. And in this excruciating moment, he says, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they're yelling at the top of their lungs, and he's seeing Jesus standing. And they're together rushing against him, dragging him out through the city, and stoning him, and witnesses are laying their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So you get just a little taste right there of the movement of God. Because if you're familiar with our faith at all, Saul is rescued one chapter later, actually in chapter 9, by Jesus as well, and becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, carrying the name of Christ throughout the globe. And so right here you're seeing this powerful first initiative of Saul is the most excruciating moment in the life of the church. So he's stoning Stephen. He cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with the, the loud voice, do not hold this against them, Lord. And after saying this, he died. And then it just carries on. So Saul agreed with putting him to death and a severe persecution. This is chapter eight, broke out against the church. And the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. In verse 4, so those who were scattered went about their way, preaching the word. And, and what, what if it becomes a conviction of ours that the most excruciating moment of our life, which you are either in the midst of, potentially for some of you in this room right now, you are in a really wonder, I don't know where you're at, but we walk through excruciating moments in our lives. What if we reflect the movement of the church and the most excruciating moment of our life is often trumped by the conviction that we have of who Jesus is and the trust in the sovereign hand of God. And that perhaps, just perhaps, God may use our most excruciating moment for the amplification of his name throughout the world. And I don't say that to minimize the excruciation of your moment. Just so four convictions that we've talked about is that this in the midst of this moment, I I think you fully intend to use me, God. And it's not just use me, Jesus. I think you're going to use me to advance the name of Jesus. So I'm convicted of that. What would what would happen? I want to read my sentence from four weeks ago. Four convictions that have lived out will serve to change this community, city and the nations. And I believe that with all my heart. I mean, I'm just looking at a movement that exploded across the world out of excruciating pain. The Holy Spirit, number two, fills me with everything I need for this. And so um, while I want to be 300, I should probably stop and pray. I can't fathom the exponential impact of the gospel. And, and I would say that Jesus would say, or that it's Jesus, him too. But Stephen would say to you, um, the fourth conviction, Jesus is worth it. I think, I think see, Jesus... Stephen would just say, I want you to know this, that Jesus is worth this. He's worth you understanding that you're not looking forward for some moments when things are better to be in the midst of God's mission. You're in it now. In the most excruciating moment potentially of your life, you're in it right now. When a people who believe that we have the Spirit of God in each of us for the declaration of the gospel through all of us, Man, this becomes convicting for the joy of what God wants to do through us. And I, I wrote down three really fast 
beautiful, prolific thoughts for this Mother's Day as we advance for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. Um, that we would first be just people who are deeply filled with purpose. And compels us, it compels us to mission. And I don't think we do this if we don't know the worth of God. And so I just really want to be real, very, very simple in this moment and just read scripture for you. And before I read scripture, it's kind of um, similar, but not. Uh, I love to read A.W. Tozer a good bit. And so I love his thoughts on this idea of how you are a people of purpose. You can't be a people of purpose if we don't understand and act in the manner that God is worthy. And so Tozer says it this way. It's coming on the screen. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It may hinge whether these convictions are real or they're a nice moment on Sunday morning. So what we believe about God, what comes into our mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure as the worshiper entertains the highest thoughts of God. And so for this reason... The gravest question before the church is always God himself and what the church conceives God to be like. And so here's just some scripture for you in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. This is the Old Testament view of the greatness of God. And the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. I mean, they can't speak, but they're speaking, is what the next verse says. They don't have the capacity to speak, being the created earth. But here's what we know. We know our God is great, and his voice is heard because the declaration of the world around us, and this just guides my heart to the book of Romans, which says, how can people know when they are so far? And the Lord said, all of creation is declaring the great of the living God. Verse 4 says that this, this message has gone out over the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. And I love this thought. Isn't it a comfort as a people of purpose to worship a God that you and I cannot exaggerate? So I think that's on the screen. It's on the screen I'm looking at. I, that's, this is one of my favorite sentences. It's from Francis Chan. Isn't it a compelling freedom for you and for us to sit in this room right now and to say, we worship a God that we fundamentally cannot exaggerate. I was kind of singing tremble in a little soft manner. And I'm not getting the fact that God explodes in the darkness, that God moves in power, that he moves in strength. And I cannot exaggerate the name of Jesus. I'll read it this way, Colossians 1, because they didn't want to exaggerate. They wanted to say, this is where the church is built. He being Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him. For everything was created by him. For everything was created by him. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. They are created through him, and here's the beautiful sentence, and for him. He's before all things. And by him, all things are held together. And so if you're sitting in this room right now and going, I want to live with conviction. I want the Spirit of God to fulfill me. I want to walk this out in a practical manner. Here's the beautiful wonder, but I am unhinged in this world. Well, here's the beautiful, beautiful picture of being a person of purpose. Jesus, Jesus. I tremble at your name and I want to live with conviction and I want to operate in weaponized weakness. 
And I believe, God, that I want to be held together to make some impression over some people while you're just simply asking me to lay down my life before you and to operate out of a place of extraordinary strength, out of my, my extraordinary weakness. It's, I don't have to be held together by Jesus. All things hold together. He's also the head of the church. Isn't that good news? He's the big, and there's not a committee that's going like to come together and we're going to get it. Not a pastor. Not, Jesus is the only thing that is, he's the person that is guiding this from the beginning. He's also the firstborn from the dead. That is extraordinarily good news for those who have passed in front of us, who we are saying, praise you, Jesus, for the hope of the resurrection. So that he might come to have the first place in everything. God cannot be contained in this world, explained by our vocabulary, or grasped by our understanding. This is what I would want you to come around as we kind of said, we want to be convicted by this, Lord. We want to be used by you, Lord. We want the truth of who you are to set us free. That's what we're longing for. I, I said this last week, and I want to come back to this for just a couple of minutes. Jesus rescued our soul. I love having Elise and Aiden um, share in their baptism when we say that Jesus rescued our soul. I, I really appreciate the next portion. The truth is what will set them free with steps of purpose as they walk this earth. That Jesus came as a rescuer to redeem our soul, but the truth of who God is and unhinging the multitude of lies that have set root into my life that have defined me, coming to know who Jesus is, what he says of me, how he purposes me, that he calls me his own, that he's adopted me into my family, that he purposes my step, that he calls me his poetry. All of these things move me, and those are what set me free. And I think we have that as a nice quip or a nice um, thread that we put. And so the truth sets me free. I think that's often stated extraordinarily out of biblical context. I mean, it's used in a nice movie line, a sweet clip, a good tweetable moment. And we should establish this, that what truth is it that you refer to that sets you free? What truth do you hold on to? Because I don't want to have a nice, nice quip in this morning's moment. Um, is it your own truth? Is it your, the world's truth? Is it the truth of the culture? Is it the truth of your past? Is it the truth of the excruciating present, which is where Stephen was in that moment? And I will suggest to you that it's extraordinarily free in this moment. Is it the truth of what you have walked through in some place in your past? Has that been what has defined you? I mean, there is one eternal, unshakable truth. His name is Jesus. He is the truth. He is the hope for who we are. He is the truth that brings freedom to us. And I fear that when I sit in a room and say, Jesus saves our soul, the truth sets us free, we overlay it about some truth that's ill-defined about ourselves. And there is a truth named Jesus that is unshakable. That is, that is all. That is encompassing. That truly catalyzes us. And we have to wrestle with this question. So what does it look like, Jesus, to be a son or daughter of the king? How do I walk this truth out in this world? And when that conviction settles our soul and we begin to divine ourselves, not out of the, some quip or cultural thought, but we are defined by the truth of who we are in Christ, this Stephen story becomes much similar to our story, except ours will be unique and wonderfully made. 
It's beautiful. So what does it mean to, to wrestle with this question, what we cling to about our truths, that they become reality, that they dismantle lies that have formed in the heart of who we are, and we begin to say, God, we are set free for purpose and to prevail in hope, which leads me straight to my second thought. We're a people, or we're looking at a person and a people who are prevailing in hope in this moment. Is your truth that sets you free worth it in everyday mission? I think that the answer of the people is yes. You read the Stephen story, and that's powerful. But you carry on. The most important part of the story after Stephen's death, or maybe even about his death, is found in chapter 8, verse 5 of the book of Acts. Here's what it said. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. Philip did what we all do in the midst of um, a reality of being convicted by truth and deeply settled in our lives. He had, he had watched his closest friend in the most excruciating day for the church lose his life. And so his natural inclination in chapter 8, verse 5, within minutes of Stephen's death, was to do this. So Philip went down to a city and he started proclaiming the sufficiency of Jesus. Philip kept breathing, he kept moving, he kept living, and he kept saying, Lord, write me in truth. When Philip allowed God to meet with him and walk with him on the worst day of his life, there were beautiful things that happened quickly. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Samaria? Samaria. He went to Samaria. That's awesome. Could you just write that out today anywhere you want, you know? I had no idea. But Mark Siegel shared that Philip was the first missionary to America. It used to be called Samarica. And so, Philip, I mean, I, I've, I have just prayed through this scripture so much, reading chapter 8, in verses 5 through 8. I mean, there were miraculous signs, weird things that Baptists aren't comfortable with, like, you know, walking by and there are evil spirits shrieking as they leave people's eyes. There's crippled that are healed. There's just beautiful moments that are going on. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 8, it says, And great joy just started abounding in that city. And this is on the worst day of his life. The most excruciating day for the, for the church. And Philip just stands up and says, I'm breathing in your grace, Lord. And I don't believe that this was an easy or simple thing for Philip. I believe it was a conviction for Philip. And his conviction was forged even more by looking at his friend Stephen, who modeled for him what it looks like to be convicted that the kingdom of Jesus is worth it. If you read chapter 8, verse 4, I back it up one verse, and it just simply says that those who scattered preached the word wherever they went. And I like that it's those. It's just they. It's just a group of people like us who on some of the most painful days of our life to scatter out and say, God, would you use us? It's a simple sentence that represents an incredible movement of God's people. They spread the word about Jesus in Joppa. They planted churches in Cyprus. They started a small Bible study in Alexandria. They baptized new believers in Ephesus. They wrote letters, recorded the gospel in writing. They took the message of Jesus to every corner of the world. Thanks to the persecution of God's people and to the um, stoning of Stephen, thanks to the worst day of their lives, the message of Jesus Christ became a global and worldwide movement. 
Because there was convictions, four convictions, if you will. Jesus, I believe that you want to use me to change the world. Jesus, I believe that your Holy Spirit will be sufficient as I, and I can imagine Philip just kind of walking out after preaching Christ and Joppa and falling over in the night and going, Jesus, I miss him. Can you just... To just pass on to Stephen and I love him and I'm going to keep amplifying you, Jesus, throughout this journey. But Jesus, my heart hurts. I don't want to overlay the most excruciating day of his life. But at the same point, he believed that the Holy Spirit would give him what he needed, not for the next five years in a global movement, but for the next day to breathe again. I want immediately in my heart just to move to Isaiah 40. And I won't go there other than to say the 31st verse just says, when you are waiting on the Lord and hoping in him and you don't think you can take another breath. You're not sure you can walk one more step. And you do. Breathe. And you take one step. They that wait upon the Lord will renew and renew in the most excruciating points of their life. They will renew their strength. And they will mount up with wings like eagles. And they are not going to start running with Urah. They'll just take a step. And say, Jesus, would you use us in this step? It's all we have right now. And at some point, they will walk and not grow weary. And I love this. And they'll run. And they won't faint. I do not downplay the challenges in life but I will not also downplay for the church the gospel of Jesus. And what God can do in the midst of the most excruciating points of life in Jesus is worth it. And I believe they prevail in hope. I think I've said that. And finally, they're positioned eternally. So when you wake up on the morning after the worst day, open the word. There's two passages I thought of eternally as I see this picture of Stephen as he just do you not love this like Stephen full of the spirit gazing into heaven sees the glory of God Jesus standing at the right hand of the father which has its whole sermon unto itself seeing the heavens open and all around him all surrounding him are gnashing screaming hating and pounding with stones and what's he seeing seeing the heavens seeing Jesus standing I'm seeing holy, holy, holy going on. I love that John the Baptist, not John the Baptist, I love John, the disciple of Jesus, as he gains a vision and shares it with us in Revelation, the fourth and fifth chapter. It's almost like an insight into what Stephen is seeing. She sees elders taking off crowns and falling on their faces. And their declaration of this, you're worthy, Lord. You're worth it. You're worthy, O Lord. You receive honor and glory and power for you created all things. Creatures at the same moment are bringing in, and I don't know how this is going to jive because it seems like two different songs, but I'm sure they're harmonizing some well because it's heaven after all. And so one of them are going, you're worthy, Lord. And the other one are crying out, these creatures, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I mean, this is what Stephen is looking at as it goes on around him. He was, he is, he is Jesus. He is to come. Imagine being in that scene surrounded by elders who are chanting that Jesus is worth it. Surrounding by creatures that are chanting Jesus is worth it. No wonder Stephen's response in this moment is so otherworldly because he is standing in this moment and he is looking at the grace and the goodness and the wonder of the eternal and while he is 
also being surrounded by the extraordinary brokenness of the temporal and his heart just moves upward. And is it surprising to you when our gaze is fixed on Jesus? Is it surprising to you when our convictions are rooted in Christ? Is it surprising to you when that is the truth of someone and the Holy Spirit fills us because that is our Godward gaze? Is it surprising to you that the response would be, Oh, holy God, I pray that you won't hold what's happening in a very temporal way against them. But I pray, God, that you would open the eyes of their heart so that they can see what I'm seeing. I pray for the people who are hitting me with stones right now in this most excruciating day. I pray, holy God, that you would help them to see what I'm seeing right now. So Jesus, please do this. Jesus, please do this. You're standing. I see you. I'm about to sit with you. And so please do me a favor. Open their eyes at some point. And look, Saul standing there. He did. We're in this room because of this movement, this moment, this powerful, excruciating, painful, Christ-glorifying moment when there is a convicted man seeing a Godward gaze and caring deeply about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah says it this way, and I close. He says, when I saw God, the base of his robe filling the temple, Seraphim flying around. See, sees the same thing. I love the consistency of Scripture. The holiness of God being cried out. The whole earth full of His glory. Isaiah is healed and his heart is impassioned. And what I value about Revelation and Isaiah 6 is this. John, in the book of Revelation, stokes our imagination for the throne room of God. And I long for your imagination and mine to be stoked in this excruciating day for many of us for the throne room of the living God. Seraphim flying, holy, 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 crying out. Isaiah reminds us of our only response because we don't have another response from Stephen. He goes from looking at the right hand of the Father and Jesus standing to being at the right hand of the Father and Jesus standing. Isaiah hangs around for a little while longer and he gives the only response that is fitting for those of us who are going to linger a little while longer. He sees it. He is stoked by it. His heart is moved by it. And his only answer is ours. If If we are a committed people who are convicted about the beauty and wonder of God on through his spirit for the sake of his glory believing Jesus is worth it the only thing that we do when we gaze Godward is this here I am Lord use me send me you're worth it and we spend the rest of our days on this earth with the feet of the gospel being shod for the gospel with the hope of the mission, the fullness of the Spirit, the declaration of the glory and the worth of Jesus as the desire of our soul, even in the midst of the most excruciating of moments. We believe in the glory of the gospel. And in fact, because of the excruciation of walking this earth, we rest We chain ourselves to the gospel. Jesus, I pray that you would move within us to places of significant conviction. That God, you would believe, you would cause us and compel us to believe that there is a bigger story than what we're living and breathing in this moment. That there is a more beautiful reality than what we simply see with our eyes. Jesus, I pray for Mandarin Baptist and those who happen to make up the group gathered here today, that you would 
do something miraculous and open the eyes of our heart to see who you are and what you're doing. God, I pray for those who are sitting in this room, and it is an excruciating season of life right now. God, I pray that your helper, your Holy Spirit, would just whisper a holy rest into our ears in this moment. There would be a peace, and I love the peace that we ask for. It's not a peace that we can conjure. God, I pray that there would be a peace that permeates hearts in the midst of excruciation that surpasses our understanding. God, I pray that you would more beautifully purpose this church, not not by six more partners that we should go serve with, but one face that we should pursue, and that is Jesus. God, I pray that you would create within us weaponized weakness, a people who are diffused of self and infused with the spirit of the living God. And God, I pray that you would rise up within us just this wonder and beauty. Jesus, you're worth it. So allow us, Father, the miraculous. Allow us to glimpse heaven. Allow us to understand the eternal. And then allow us to be like Isaiah. Just here, here's my heart. Here are my feet. Here are my hands, Jesus. Send me. You're worthy. So we, um, we tend to sing a song to close our service. We're singing a really beautiful song today. It speaks of the grace of Christ and the chains of bondage. I would pray freedom for this room. The chains would just fall as we worship. I pray that you would see Jesus. Some of our pastors will be here at the front. If you would like to pray with someone, we would love to pray for you. If you want to just bypass us and skip straight to the Lord, just stay where you are and pray. Come to the front and find an altar and kneel and pray. That's extraordinarily biblical. We really just want this closing time to be freedom for us. For some of us in the excruciating season. For all of us in the prayerfully a season of conviction. So would you stand with me? Would you worship with me? Would we sing this song together as the people who are praying that our hearts are convicted and alive for the things of Jesus?